Blog Talk Radio. Nigga, do you send a gun? Bobo, let me go with the freak. 
But I got to say, Brother Africa, you know, when I look at the kind of violence that permeates society, you know, it really got me thinking in terms of perniciousness of the kind of violence that exists in society and the extent to which people legitimize this, this violence. And it has a long history, and I think it's important people understand this long history in terms of violence and the philosophical precepts that, that made it possible for violence to be so acceptable as it is today in American society. But in any event, Brother Africa, I want, to, I want you to check this out. Now, Brother Jamil el formerly H.R. Brown, once stated violence is as American as cherry pie. A cursory stroll through American history bolsters el claim, leaving little doubt there is something fundamentally amiss with respect to violence in American society. Starting with the annihilation or genocide of the indigenous people, this process of wholesale violence did not end. Content to escalate the level of violence, Africans were next to endure the pain of forced enslavement and the denigration that accompanied this peculiar institution. While enslavement of humans by humans is not unique to America, the intensity and ignominious depth of African slavery created precedent unique to the annals of slavery. Many would argue the, the vicious propensity exhibited by the U.S. ruling class is the direct result of Western culture and its indifference to human life. At its very core, this argument is specious and extremely subjective. The logical rebuttal is Western culture does not embrace the entirety of the population of Europe. Culture, like any variable assessing human behavior, has to be assessed individually. Arguing that all people within a geo geographical boundary agree with the wanton slaughter of other human beings for purposes of greed would be inane or foolish. In order to better understand the prevalence of violence used by Western political elites historically, a discussion, a very brief discussion involving the philosophical dualisms that existed, that was waged in Europe, the continent, <clears throat> is warranted. Struggles between the old guard the historic, historic, excuse me, aristocracy, particularly the kings and the Catholic Church, were loggerheads with opponents of rationalism and enlightenment. During the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century, people like Martin Luther advocated breaking away from the Catholic Church because the ideas the church espoused were oppressive and incapable of creating better human beings. By focusing on human beings' relationship with the Creator being primary, Martin Luther gave tacit support to theologians like Polycarp, who in 155 AD opposed materialism and the implicit evil of elevating the pursuit of power over life. Opposition to ending the materialism for spiritualism compared authority figures to fight hardest to secure their interests. In hindsight, needless to say, the forces of materialism prevailed, and, it, and with it, the evolution of science to justify destruction in the name of greed. Spreading through the world the notion greed is good, framers of the U.S. Constitution created a document which codified greed, proclaiming greed is the domain of the capitalist class and pursuit of wealth could be attained by any level of violence. Violence by the U.S. and inflicted casualties around the world is well documented. According to some estimates, the U.S. military since the Revolutionary War, 30 million people. Content to elevate the number of dead, in 1992, the Wolfowitz Doctrine, or the former Assistant Secretary of State under George Bush I, formulated a plan attempting to prevent states from challenging U.S. authority. Currently, the Cold War posture of the U.S. against China and Russia is an attempt and preventing both countries from rising politically as well as economically. Ironically, both countries possess nuclear weaponry. In the advent of war, the planet will be irrevocably harmed. U.S. belligerents toward the pivot to Asia or the encircling of China, a large contingent of NATO troops amassing on Russia's, Russia's borders, exacerbates or makes inevitable a war. In the event of war with either nation, the death toll will be enormous. Now, violence as American way of life is personified by institutions as a penchant to use violence to solve problems. Violence employed by the U.S. comes in many forms. Often violence is expressed verbally or by policies or laws pursued by the country. 
The end result of violence is to get the perceived opponent to admit defeat, to be able to impose the dominant will on a weaker opponent for the purpose of validating one's status over an inferior. No group epitomizes this definition more than the Republican Party. Now, it's just as a note, Democratic parties are no different. Their tactics are simply different, but they simply do the same thing. So there's just more nuance in terms of how to go about doing it, subjugating the people. Recently, 49 states passed or attempted to pass 389 voter suppression laws specifically to prevent African and or poor people from voting. If they succeed, legislation will no doubt move to the right. The result would be to increase populism of African people, thus ensuring the systematic abuse of African people will increase with little or no means by Africans to address the abuses. Upon closer inspection of the strategy, its impact will actually contribute to the already declining economy because of the social costs. Social costs, in particular, incarceration, or government transfer payments, or decline in high school graduation rates, which would be enormous. The fact this is not considered suggests inflicting pain on Africans is a real motivation. Hostility in America manifests itself among those with high visibility. Three Republican female Congress people have been very vocal about what they see as socialism sweeping the country. No problem with socialism for the wealthy, but socialism for the poor is problematic. In a time of COVID-19, government support, the difference between life and death, is perceived as wrong. How much violence against poor people must be endured before these women express some compassion? It gets worse. Former National Security Advisor to Trump, Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, advocated a coup in the U.S. similar to the coup in Myanmar, where the military took over the civilian government. Not to be outdone, Republicans in both the Senate and the House blocked the January 6th commission studying how protesters gained access to the Capitol building. Unlike the Church Committee in 1975, which sought the people responsible for violating the people's civil rights, Republicans moved to kill commission speaks volumes about the level of complicity or wrongdoing by powerful people to ensure the success of the January 6th riots. Implications of powerful people, of powerful people including citizens and congressmen, participation in facilitating January 6th riots underscores the ability of powerful people to enrage and coerce many in society who see elected officials as infallible. The mere fact representatives who took an oath of office who identify with authoritarianism means they are willing to inflict violence and harm on anyone who stands in the way of institutional power. And when majority of Republicans poll agree, the traditional way of American way of life is disappearing and forces the only way to save it, my suggestion to you is to believe them, to believe what they say. And I close with that, Brother Africa. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Haki. Next, we'll go to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Thank you, thank you, Brother Africa. And greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice. My name is Robert Andrew Moses, and I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, who is the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And I've, we don't reverse correct verdict, Brother Africa. I'm pro-choice, and I vote. And uh, we know that Equal Rights Amendment, ERA, yes, women hold up half the sky. And I would just like to say on, on this Day after the anniversary of the Tenement Square situation, um, I like to say that Marxism teaches that the state of government comes about due to the emergence of class society. The existence of the state is recognition 
that there are classes in the social order and that, and that one class has to control the rights of the other classes in order to dominate society and pursue its class interests. That's basic Marxism, i.e., the state can only serve the interests of one class. There can be only one ruling class dictating its interests to the rest of the social order and thereby suppressing the interests of the other classes. In fact, the essence of the struggle reveals that there are only two classes in developed capitalism, i.e., the workers and the owners. And so it's within this spirit that we have to look at the situation in China. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Next, we'll go to Sister Shirley. We'd like to bring her in and say welcome to Africa on the Move. Sister Shirley. Thank you, Brother Africa. I hope that everybody is uh, doing well today. Revolutionary greetings to everybody all around. Um, Today, um, my mind is in a lot of different places across the globe. And um, I am very glad that perhaps a little later on in our discussion today that we all have a chance to uh, discuss Vijay Prashad's book and the review of it, Um, because I think that uh, Vijay has a particular knack for being able to uh, explain how perverted things can get when the United States begins to, to to be the primary explainer to the world of what the rest of the world is like. And by that, I mean uh, everything from uh, the, the, the dirty job that the U.S. is doing regarding uh, Nicaragua, uh, certainly for everything uh, that the United States is trying to push for regarding both Russia and uh, China, playing extremely uh, dangerous games. Um, also, there are so many things that are seem to be unfold, uh, unfolding. Uh, regarding AFRICOM's announcement that over the next four to five years, they plan on expanding AFRICOM bases throughout the continent. Um, Also, I think that the situation regarding Cuba has gotten to an extremely desperate situation. Again, there are few peoples on this earth that can deal with extremely difficult problems, societal problems. Cuba is one of them and one of the very few. But still, I think things have gotten to, to, be, to be extremely desperate. Uh, Cuba had to uh, send a message to the European Union uh, a portion of the uh, legislators in the European Union have decided that they will uh, decide more about what they think about a relationship with Cuba after they get more information on human rights abuses in Cuba. Basically, the government of Cuba turned around and told them to go to hell on that, if that's the route they're going. So 
Um, I'll stop there, but I'm in uh, many different places throughout the globe, and uh, I also have a, a short uh, update that I can give everybody regarding the uh, uh, the DC program of $350 million in order to distribute, to help people pay for their rent and their utilities. Um, we finally got a message uh, from our uh, the the place uh, the building that we rent from, and uh, they gave the just basic information as um, forms are available downstairs if you wish to apply to uh, get help with your rent money. Uh, it will be it will cover rent back to April 2020. Don't worry, you won't have to repay it. And then at the end of it, the last paragraph was, and after you finish filling out the form, make sure you give them our email address, meaning the email address of the owners of my building, and our telephone number. Now, that could certainly be used in a wide variety of ways. I'm not exactly uh, certain of what they're trying to get at, but if these if people are supposed to be applying for this for themselves, it seems as though they would ha- be able to provide their own contact information. Okay, I'm going to shut up. Thank you very much. All right. You're listening to Africa on the Moon. What we want to do is we're going to pause for the call play some music with a message. And when we come back, we'd like to involve you by calling in at 323-679-0841. We're going to discuss what's going on in your world and the community. We'll be right back. This is Africa on the Move. Oh. 
Right, don't be a Buffalo soldier. Ever since our arrival, we're still fighting for our survival. We're welcoming back to Africa on the Move, and right now, if you'd like to participate on what's going on in your world community, we have a line open at 323-679-0841. Right now, we bring in our brother Haki, and we want him to share with us what's going on in his world and the community. The mic is yours, Brother Haki. Well, Brother Africa, uh, one of the things that uh, uh, perturbs me to no end is this question in terms of in terms of evil. Because the reason why it's, it perturbs me is because often people use that term evil. Uh, it's very interesting, but they only seem to use that term as it relates to individuals. But when you look in terms of government policies, uh, the kind of things institutions and society does that facilitate the worst kind of atrocities. No one has ever defined those actions as evil. So that kind of paradox for me is very, very interesting. So it got me to thinking in terms of this whole concept of, of evil and not to be too ecumenical in terms of my assessment. But I think it's important that we raise this question in terms of this question of evil and all its implications. Now, the word evil is often utilized to define an action or event which is perceived as unconscionable or shocking in its elements. Recently in Florida, a 14-year-old girl and a 12-year-old boy ran away from a child care facility and allegedly broke into a house where they came across an AK-47, pump shotgun, handgun, and over 2,000 rounds of ammunition. Police alleged a 14-year-old girl pointed a pump-action shotgun at them on two occasions, but did not mention at any time the weapon was pumped to inject rounds into the chamber. Police shot the girl in the stomach and arm. Now, according to Sheriff Mike Cheekwood, he described the children as evil while downplaying the significance as to why anyone would stockpile numerous weapons and ammunition in their home, presumably to protect it. Chiefwood's analysis of the children as evil seems misplaced. Labeling the children as evil makes it easier to dismiss the role of institutions play in the creation of social problems and its impact on young minds. Inundated with media images which defines an individual's worth based upon, possessing a, um, based upon possessions, disadvantages foster care children, whose dramatic lives magnified instability while facilitating negative self-worth. In the U.S., according to American Academy of Pediatrics, between TV and social media ads, young people view over 330 ads daily. The devastating impact of commercials on young minds is well documented, but the impact on young children eight years and younger is even more pronounced. Cognitively disadvantaged, young minds are incapable of understanding the complexity of ads. Believing what they see or hear is an honest assessment of the product advertised. Children whose circumstances make obtaining these advertised items impossible will not only affect the child's self-worth, but also how that child sees his or her parent. Uh, parents spend about $155 billion a year providing their children with brand-name products. Parents lacking the means to provide their children with advertised items complicates the parenting relationship. When the division between parent and child are exacerbated by unemployment, extremely low wages, or self-medication or use of drugs to cope 
if those things are amplified by when those things are amplified by absence of social media, social safety net, these children, borrowing family support, often end up in foster care. Keenly aware of the pitfalls related to advertising, some European countries forbid or minimize commercials aimed at children. In the U.S., it is business as usual. Despite the social costs affiliated with advertising, the $250 billion yearly revenue are more important than the lives of children, parents, or community. I ask you, is this evil? Now, the level of stress inflicted on poor, poor people continues to escalate. This escalation is attributed to policy by political leaders, many of whom are aware of the adversity of the lives of young, poor people and the systematic appendages that inflict much harm on families and their children. Despite the adverse childhood experience study published by the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, detailing the traumatic impact of poverty on children, politicians, both Democratic and Republican, continue to innovate policy continuously, which is known to undermine children's development or, in the same vein, marginalized groups of children who have historically been disadvantaged. From urban America to rural America, from suburbia to rustic enclaves, poverty's ability to create dysfunction is well and well established fact. So when politicians enact policy that increases poverty, one has to wonder if their motivations are driven by politics or disdain for working people, or both. Well, while President Ronald Reagan in 81 made cuts to aid and family with dependent children, mandating welfare recipients participate in workforce programs, President Clinton went a step further by authorizing the Personal Responsibility and Works Opportunity Act in 1996. This bill eliminated AFDC, open-ended entertainment, and created block grants to states for limited cash assistance to poor people. The onus of the bill was to compel states to remove indigent or very poor people from receiving assistance. As the city as the strategy is, it pales in comparison to the broader political reality. The structural reality is while mandating shipping should pursue work, capitalism is not designed to employ everyone who wants a job. People with jobs in capitalism is called heating the economy. When the economy heats up, less profits for the capitalists. In a sense, compassion takes a back seat to the interests of a small economic elite, and concern for children's well-being evaporates into a pool of, pool of the abyss, never, <clears throat> never of any real significance. By the time Trump became president, a clear precedent was established, and he embraced hostility toward working people eagerly. Utilizing executive orders, Trump decimated the social safety net for children. SNAP program was cut by $180 billion between 2021 and 2030. Child nutritional programs cut by $1.7 billion over 10 years. Cut the children's health insurance program. Deduction of affordable housing vouchers for the working poor. Are these cuts dramatic for working people? Do they elevate stress to the levels of toxic? Yes, to both questions. According to newer scientists, the level of stress induced by a lack of stable housing, healthy food, low wages, and stressed out parents all have a residual impact on children's intellectual and social development. The impact on children's brains is so catastrophic the stress prevents the child's ability to the child prevent the child's the brain the brain of the child's ability to build circuits that allow different regions of the brain to process information. This deficit results in poor social emotional development, poor language development, and damage to the brain's brain structure itself. Chief among brain structure impairment is damage to the hippocampus, responsible for consolidation of information as well as short and long-term memory. Also, the prefrontal excuse me, prefrontal cortex which is responsible for higher cognitive abilities, maintaining exact rules, and a working memory. Now, given the explicit harm poverty can inflict upon children, why would any politician or system seek to harm or debilitate children simply because their parents are poor? Why would anyone create conditions that will hamper a child for the rest of his or her life? Perhaps they hurt children because they're evil. What do you think? And I told you that, Brother Africa.
Thank you, Brother Haki. Next, we'll go to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, what's going on in your world and the community? The mic is yours. Yeah, well, this has been a very interesting time in history. Uh, we find a situation where the bastion of reaction on the face of the earth is Israel, and um, certainly they need a new democratic or socialist revolution in order to resolve that situation in Israel. But I don't know that we can do, I don't know if it can be done uh, without a socialist revolution within the United States, a new democratic revolution within the United States, certainly. Um, meanwhile, uh, the, the bourgeois revolution of, 19, of 1776 in the United States, which, uh, which um, included capitalism and slavery, uh, is, was a step away from uh, uh, the British government and its, its, its um, well, more or less feudalist situation. The situation in Iran, Iran had a bourgeois democratic revolution uh, that moved them out of feudalism with the Shah and et cetera. And uh, certainly the people of Iran uh, can't get a thorough unions and uh, workers' rights are uh, in jeopardy because there's not a, a socialist government in power. Around the world we see problems and we see contradictions, and uh, we have to get our attitude and our, and our perceptions right according to the class forces and the alignment of the class forces, the imperialist forces, and uh, recognize the direction of the main blow at this point in time should be Israel. And I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. There we go, Sister Shirley. Sister Shirley, what's going on in your world and the community? The mic is yours, Sister Shirley. Brother Africa, thank you. And and I'll uh, pick up on Robert's uh, point here because it's uh, another part of the world that has been on my mind a lot, and that is Israel and Palestine. Um. Uh, and I think we're beginning to see, in response to Israel's caught on videotape, seen all over the world, uh, genocidal attack on uh, Palestinian people recently, that the there throughout many parts of the world. Um, organization around fighting against Israel is coalescing. And it's coalescing, I believe, at a pace that I haven't seen other things uh, uh, come together so quickly in response to a huge um, international issue. And part of that uh, took place in two two major incidents, one took place in uh, England, in which uh, Palestinians and other activists took over a Israeli uh, arms uh, manufacturing uh, center, and uh, they uh, mounted the top of the roof of where circuitry was being uh, uh, manufactured that goes into both drones and 
also inside tanks that are used by Israeli forces. And uh, what's, what was amazing about their early morning hours uh, uh, um, operation that the activists took is that the people of the community around them came to help them. The objective of the group was to stay and occupy the area inside to prevent the workers from working. And the community helped by trying to barricade gates even before the police got there. So this spontaneous um, uh, solidarity that came from uh, the neighborhood uh, was, uh, I think, a very good sign, but an even better sign that things regarding Israel are coming together quicker and with a hell of a lot more organization is what has been happening out in Oakland, California regarding uh, a group of activists that represent um, several Arab and Palestinian organizations and also a wide variety of U.S. Um, peace organizations. Um, and they decided that they would block the entry of an Israeli ship that was supposed to dock and and let off cargo. And they also got agreement from the Longshoremen's Union that the Longshoremen's Union would not cross the picket line. And they were able to to stave off uh, this ship for actually a series of several days. And they had a system very well organized where people were able to get out at any time a call came out, whether the ship looked like it was trying to come in closer to shore. And finally, the, the ship uh, uh, put out a press release basically saying that it was unable to get in to unload its cargo in Oakland and then it would perhaps would have to look for other places to off-put the cargo along the West Coast of the United States. Altogether, it looks as though that over the period of several days, there were over 5,000 people uh, that were uh, involved in this activity. Um, um, and um, the obviously the cooperation of the uh, Longshoremen's Union was critical to this uh, being a success. So um, I think certainly if, if you're um, talking about Israel, that here is one group that has decided to organize themselves in order to get the results they're, they're looking for. Supposedly the Israeli ship, uh, which is part of a, an Israeli shipping company uh, that uh, I believe it's the 13th largest one in the world, 
um, spent a long time in waters off of Oakland. And as one of the representatives of the protesters said, and probably losing about $25,000 a day floating out there, trying to see if they could offload. Uh, It looks as though that they at least may have found some opportunity to put up resistance to um, Israel goods, Israeli goods coming into the country. Um, So I just, these are some uh, positive signs I've seen and heard about, and I just wanted to share them with folks. Uh, We don't know uh, what they may come into, but they certainly uh, are. are, This activity, of course, was preceded by dock workers in Livorno, uh, Italy, and in South Africa, who refused uh, to offload. And um, I believe that over time we're going to see more unions working with activists uh, in order to continue this activity. Thank you. Thank you, Sister. Thank you, Sister Shirley. Now we're going to Sister Eleanor. Sister Eleanor, welcome to Africa on the Move, where you can share with the listening audience on what's going on in your world and the community. Sister Eleanor. Um, good good evening, everyone, and thank you, everyone within our listening voice, for having an interest in the health of Mother Earth and our planet, as well as crushing this ridiculous pandemic. Well, Brother Africa, I'm sorry to see that um, the, the revolutionary actions of the Cuban people are being rewarded with them not being able to re- receive the syringes they need to uh, inoculate their own population after sharing their vaccine with, uh, uh, I understand, Venezuela. I also uh, was interested this week in uh, the uh, Gar- Garifani. Garifani. Uh, they are a group of uh, Hondurans who uh, stand for environmental justice and social justice and um, stand proudly as uh, representatives of the diaspora. In addition, um, the struggle continues for Moderna to make available its proprietary uh, information so that the vaccine can be produced anywhere globally. Right now, we see a 30% uh, uh, uptake in terms of corona cases in Africa as well as uh, other South American countries. So the pandemic, though it seems to be uh, somehow uh, controlled in Western countries, is beginning to implode on us in the South. That means in Africa, South America, and uh, Central America. Now, the deal is, unless everyone is inoculated, no one is safe. So that remains our goal. And we still, I stand in my heart and try to uh, raise the consciousness of people in reference to the apartheid regime in Israel and the uh, genocide against the Palestinian people every day with my morning prayer. I just don't have to be 
in Palestine to know that they are having a problem with the infrastructure after the, this terrific Iron Dome bombings. So there's a problem with electricity. There's a problem with clean water. The Corona Clinic was bombed in Gaza. So how are people getting inoculated? We have uh, 70 UN schools that were destroyed. So where will people live? Um, so these are issues. And uh, also, we mustn't forget the issue of world hunger and uh, what's going on in Yemen and uh, in uh, uh, Ethiopia. Uh, so we stand in solidarity with uh, Mother Earth, and we have to remind everyone what uh, V says, that uh, right now is the time to not give up and forget about women and girls. There is a international move to educate women and girls. It starts with feeding them. Once you have a garden and a source of nutrition, you're then able to study and change the world. So uh, I just thank you for doing this podcast. Good evening to all the panelists, the Shirley, Brother Moses, yourself, Brother Hakeem, and uh, thank you for your continued commitment to educating the working class. If we can build strong unions and organize in the United States, we as workers can have a positive change on the environment, therefore the globe. Thank you. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. This is Africa on the Moon, June 6th. This is part two of Toss for 1921 and today. What we're going to do right now, we're going to take a quick uh, revolutionary culture break. When we come back, we'll continue to discuss this issue of what's going on in your world and the community. And you can join us by dialing 323-679-0841. We'll be right back. Don't you go nowhere, because Africa is on the move. If you think of the Middle East in this modern time, you can't help but say the word Palestine. People there have lost their land. Some have lost their home. They live in other countries, their freedom almost gone. Palestine, Palestine. needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. There seems to be no answer to give us the reason why people cannot live so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom, take a stand for truth, take a stand for justice. That's what we've got to do, because Palestine 
needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. Needs our love. Palestine. Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. People of all countries, of every race and creed, we need a new beginning. Let us plant the seed, plant the seed of love, and let that love seed grow. Plant the seed for everyone so all the world will know that Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom, needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. Thank you. Living in pain, today is the same, and nothing ever changes. Hung by a noose, can't tell the truth, filled with abuse, and everywhere there's danger. How long can this go on? When will the light I see? I know I must be. Strong to last through my journey, yeah. To last through my journey, yeah. Time will arrive when we must decide to get off the ride and stop going through these changes. We must prepare and learn how to care for soon. There where our lives won't be in danger And when the light is clear Oh, how beautiful I will be To know that I've been here And made it through my journey Yeah, and made it through my journey Pellerino, a bloodline across the waters from Benin to Salvador Bahia, a scar across the face of the earth. Pellerino, the place they brought the Africans, the place where they tried to make them slaves. Pellerino, you can feel the whip 
Hear the cries and see the blood in the red clay. The clay that holds the stones together is African. And each stone is a bone from a people called slaves. Pellerino was the place where death came to dwell. His neighbors did not complain, for he was a way out. From the cold, gray, cobblestone streets to the lifeless cathedrals, tall walls of demons called angels, haunted visions of white faces crucifying Jesus again and again. But in the sacrifice of this blood, of this dance with death, comes life more rich, more pure, more alive, where death spent many lonely nights pacing the floors of his funeral parlor, waiting for someone to die. Pellerino, a French word called the place of torture, became a place of strength, a place where faces of white saints became faces of black gods, where haunted visions and demons became healing visionaries and orishas from the motherland. And Jesus rejoined his kinfolk and was reborn and baptized in the sound of sensual skin turned up to dance, to inspire a fire like the sun, pronouncing his presence. Pellerino was the tongue of the flame, licking the eyes of those who have tried to remain blind, shining a light on a spirit that would not be denied. No, the chains did not break the spirit, did not enslave the music of my soul, did not shackle the will of my freedom, did not tarnish the glow of my gold, and all the Pellerinos in Africa, in Europe, in North and South America cannot destroy the majesty of my people, the love of my people, shining like the sun everywhere we go, everywhere we go. When the light is clear, oh, how beautiful I will be. Know that I've been here and made it through my journey, yeah, and made it through my journey, yeah, 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 We'd like to welcome you back to Africa on the Moon. We're in the seat, and we're going to take the heat. As we design it, we're going to stand behind it. Right now, we're dealing with the segment, what's going on in your world and the community. We actually invite you to feel free to join in by calling 323-679-0841. Hit 1, and we will acknowledge your last four numbers. Now, getting back to the panelists for the day. This question to all the panelists and actually to um, take it first, Brother Haki. Now, when we talk about this question of the role of social media and how social media, media should be accessible to all people, what is your take on how they deal with Donald Trump and denying the right to the various social media forms? And what's the implication when they start treating people like Donald Trump in terms of not having access to the social media because they don't like the content or what he's putting out there. 
you know what he's putting out there or have put out there is no different from what most companies do. They all lie, cheat, and steal. So, Brother Aki, what's your take on the way they treat them, and what's the implication you think that will have on future generations in the public when it comes to this question of having access to the use of public media? So, Brother Aki, the bank is yours. Yeah, you're right, Brother Africa. <clears throat> Uh, it's a double-edged sword. Uh, one of the problems is that when you start, you know, you know, validating or determine what people can or can't say, when you start that kind of censorship, and inevitably you put the power of uh, censorship in the hand of a very small minority of people who actually run the society. And so it seems to me in the, in the marketplace of ideas, all should be able to express their ideas regardless of how repugnant those ideas may be, but they should fundamentally have that right. Now, clearly, you know, the uh, one of the very interesting thing in terms of the censorship of Trump, uh, much of the things that he alludes, much of the things that he articulates, uh, in fact, the ruling class are in, 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 in agreement. Also, the mere fact that their censorship has less to do in terms of a disagreement fundamentally with the message that he pervades has more to do with the fact that uh, Donald Trump is actually, in terms of you know, his no-nonsense no kind of style, is actually really too much. And the process of talking so much and revealing so much, he inadvertently he educates lots of people in terms of the inner workings of society. So that becomes a fundamental problem for those positions of power. They don't have a problem with him espousing the so-called right-wing line. They have a problem with that. But anyway, but if that line uh, tends to educate people, tends to wake people up in terms of the harsh realities in terms of this capitalist system, then it's fundamentally a problem for those positions of power. So therefore, we want to eliminate that voice. So clearly, uh, what they're doing to Donald Trump is um, uh, is, is, is regrettable. Uh, in, in, in my in my mind, you know, it shouldn't exist. But the bottom line is that because I understand the nature of politics in the, in the context of capitalist society, do not understand that the the, the objectives uh, of those positions of power is to excel or to achieve at all costs. And so if that means fundamentally, you know, uh, you know, um, uh, censoring one of their own you know, for political gains down the road, then that's precisely what they do. And so we shouldn't be we shouldn't be deceiving ourselves and thinking that they're doing this because they're committed to, you know, uh, uh they're committed to eliminating uh uh, you know, uh uh, uh those the speech that tends to that tends to um um to tend to aggravate or tend to uh turn to, to alienate or turn to um um pit people against one another. So clearly, none of that has any real, real resonance in terms of, you know, the, the ruling class uh, uh, desire in terms of eliminating Donald Trump's speech. So clearly, by the Africans, just to close, you're absolutely correct. Uh, it's a double-edged sword, and I think as someone who's progressive, we can ill afford to adapt any type of censorship, uh, irrespective of who it comes from, and understanding that any time they incorporate censorship, it's a question of time for the censorship of those on the left in terms of our willingness to convey, you know, our troops. You know, to the world. Okay, Sister Shirley, what's your take on how the social media has dealt with or dealt with Donald Trump? I think that uh, Brother Aki has expertly analyzed the whole issue, and I wouldn't add a thing, and I thank him for putting it together so beautifully. Do you have anything to add to that, Brother Moses? Yeah. Are you with us, Brother Moses? While well, I wait for Brother Moses to come in. Oh, um, Go ahead, Brother Moses. Uh, 
the situation with Donald Trump, you know, we gotta we can't afford to become neoliberalism and and uh, we have to combat liberalism and like we're we're in a struggle against fascism and uh, Trump is unequivocally and our uncertain terms proclaim that he's a fascist basically and we have to recognize and deal with it and and certainly like I read in the opening statement that we have to suppress the the, the reactionary class, and that's just that's the way it has to be done. Uh, um, there's no freedom; just everybody is just everybody gets freedom or something. I mean, this is just bull. This is some kind of democratic liberalism. Uh, when we when we're fighting fascism, we got to fight fascism, and we got to fight fascism with every every means available. And the fact that they recognize that he's a reactionary and and responded to it, I think that's great, and we should encourage that. When they when they attack the left, then we can deal with the left. But uh, but but we can't proclaim some all-out liberalism um, um, where everybody gets free speech and I don't know what it's all about. But um, but you know we have to censor. Yes, we have to censor. Thank you. Hey, what Brother Moses had to say about it? That she was out of door. What's your take on how social media is dealing with Donald Trump? I think good evening. I think appropriate action was taken. As I mentioned sometime before, Ronald Reagan changed the uh, uh, criteria for factual news reporting. And Donald Trump is a fascist. And that is the greatest crisis facing the globe. Whether it's Mobi in India or Bolsonaro in Brazil, but Donald Trump here has been dangerous. He has incited an insurgence uh, uh, on on the United States government. This man is a danger to all, to the planet. This is a man who told us to use Clorox as a as a remedy for uh, the coronavirus and says it's a joke. So I agree with Brother Hakeem, but Brother Moses hit it on the head. We can't sit around and pretend that uh, someone has the right just to spout off. If he's doing a performance piece and he's delusional or off his medication, label it as this is our lunatic president, Donald J. Trump. He's ill. But keep him off the air. No, he can't go back on Facebook. Keep him off the air. This Taylor Green and these lunatics and this Q uh, phenomena must be shown for what it is. Our nation is in a crisis. There's no time to look away. There's no time to look away. Fascism we saw what it did in the 1930s in Europe in just a matter of a few months. And within a year, thousands of people were being executed and dying. So this man has publicly said, I am a racist. He's publicly said uh, on at last uh, year, almost on this very day, you from the White House Rose Garden that you folks in Lafayette Square need to look out tonight. He went so far as to say, 
not you black people, but you whites that are out there with them. My people are coming out tonight. And what did we see in the District of Columbia that night? We saw looting. We saw fires. We saw our, our, our St. John's Church set on fire. We saw the ACLU building damage. That's never happened in any demonstration. Labor is our friend. We are workers. So we saw the danger he caused that night. We saw the danger that swept our country last summer when there were demonstrations trying to get a people that are an anomaly. Black people are, are African Americans are invisible. Our nation doesn't know who we are. They may understand other Africans from other places, but these people have been here since Columbus came in 1492 because one of the captains of a ship was an African. These people that were here when Cortez marched up the, the, and, and, and uh, the people marched up the Rio Grande and told the Navajo that the blue-eyed man is coming, the blue-eyed man is coming. The Moroccans killed no, the Navajo killed no one but him because of his mouth. And he was a danger. And Donald Trump is a greater danger. So we need to fight fascism and keep the fascists off the air, out of the media. Our people are, our nation is full of uh, people who are angry, poorly educated, misinformed, and we do not need to exasperate that situation by allowing the tyranny and the, and the rhetoric that President, former President Donald Trump feels. It's just like a poison. Stop it now. So I think the media handled that pretty well. Brother Akeem articulated it well. Brother Moses, I want to thank you for standing up against fascism because it's hard to take, it's hard to recognize, and we can't be confused. We can't be confused. You're either a part of the solution or a part of the problem, and Donald Trump is a part of the problem. I can go so far as to say he is the problem. He's destroyed the Republican Party. Panelists, uh, when you think about how social media is dealing with Donald Trump, the only thing that I would have to add to the discussion, and for um, those who might take a position they feel like they shouldn't have access to social media is that if you look at the content and his behavior or what he is uh, articulating, it's really no different than your know, major new work, uh, news network articulating to the public. Whether it's CBS, ABC, uh, Fox, I mean, they all doing the same thing that they um, attacking him with. So if you can go that far, then aren't you also putting all the networks to be in the same boat, panelists? Yeah, go ahead, Brother Moses. Yes, I want to say. Brother Moses? Um, what did you say, man? I say, if you think it's fair to treat him that way based on the content of his messages, what's the difference between his messages and, and the so called savage media? The NBC, the BBC, the ABC, right. Uh, right. you know, right. the Fox. Um, yeah, you know, what is the difference? There is a fascialization process going on in the country, and certainly the media is the ruling class's organ, so we expect, expect them to 
to uh, to uh, um, repeat and regurgitate whatever the ruling class is doing. And that's why it's so important to suppress the ruling class when we can suppress the ruling class. And Donald Trump represents the most reactionary class consciousness of, on the planet at this point. And so he is the most dangerous thing uh, since Hitler, basically. And uh, and people who don't recognize it, don't vote, don't they have no no armchair revolutionaries who sit around and just criticize and, and don't actually try to stop this stuff from happening. They have no feelings for the people. They have no roots in the people, evidently, where where they can feel the the, the actual suppression and, and repression that, that this fascism is, is process is taking place. I mean, I don't know how people can be so naive. That, it's just beyond me. And um, But I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Anyone else that can respond to my statement? I'll respond, Brother Africa. All right. Go ahead, Brother Haki. The back is yours. Uh, Brother Moses. Brother Moses, uh, take a deep breath, Brother. Listen to me. Listen to me very carefully. I understand your frustration, but let me, let's, be, let's be rational. We've got to understand the context of struggle. We have to not only be scientific, but we have to also be analytical in terms of the positions that we take. You see, it's all well to say that we should, we should end his voice. But as Brother Africa alluded to, the problem is that what he's saying is not unique in terms of the overall thinking of people in positions of power. Now, the reaction, the notion, the notion that somehow that people in positions of power are going to simply uh, change their strategy or change their tactic to accommodate the needs of the people is it's, it's, it's ironic. Uh, the, the bottom line is that that's not going to happen. And so, therefore, they have a vested interest in making damn sure that message gets perpetuated, if not by Donald Trump, by someone else. But more importantly, one thing we have to understand when we talk about fascism, essentially what we're talking about, we're not talking about individuals, we're talking about a system of control. And so when we talk about corporations' ability to actually run the system, the system uh, in which the government actually takes a backseat to corporate control, then understand Donald Trump is, is insignificant in that regard. And we've got to understand that very, very clearly. So what we're talking about is a system. So you get caught down on the emotionalism, and we can talk about Donald Trump. He's this, he's that. We can talk about that. But Donald Trump wears a real power in the scheme of things. That's what you got to understand, my brother. you got to stop thinking that simply because, you know, you, okay, well, the media did well. They told him to stop talking. They took him off the air, so we'll show him. You haven't shown him anything. You know why? Because the system in place, the fascist system that's very much in place, is still in place. The people who benefit from fascism are still in power. Don't you see? And we got to get away from this nonsense and think that, listen, listen to me, listen to me clearly. They limited his speech, okay? Do you think for, some, for one second that the, 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 the powers that be want left-wing, left-wing talk you know, to, to, to be internationalized? Do you really think for one second they want it to be normalized? Do, they want, do you think for one second that they're going to they're gonna do all in their power not to prevent left-wing speech from being out there? Of course they're going to do that because they understand within the context of left-wing speech lies some truths in which people have to understand fundamentally, truths that people are dealing on a daily basis, and they understand the injustice and suffering, and they understand the ruling class in terms of ingratiating themselves with wealth while the masses of people in this country are becoming poorer and poorer and poorer. They understand that. The left-wing speaks to those atrocities. Don't you think for one second that people in positions of power who own these media, the corporate elites who own these media, don't you think for one second they're they're creating ways in terms of limiting those kind, those kinds of expressions of truth when it comes to the left wing. So once you give them the auspices, the okay to stop Donald Trump from being on social media, don't you see you start to step away from it and say, okay, 
We don't like your speech either. You know why? Because your speech uh, divides pitch people against one another. Uh, it's adversarial. Uh, uh, it, uh, it, it, it invites people to question the government. We can't have that. So, therefore, we got to cut you off, too. And so, once you have that kind of censorship, so once, once you have that kind of censorship, then no one is supposed to speak. I'm sorry, you say something? I'm Hello? sorry, Brother Alfred, you say, Brother Alfred, you say something? Hello? Good evening. Hi, this is uh, Eleanor Johnson, Brother Akeem. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I, I, yes, I, I uh, agree with all of your comments, but I tell you that we're, we are facing something we haven't faced in almost 100 years, and that is a fascist. And it's true that the ruling class has an interest in controlling us. However, oftentimes the ruling class, the thing with fascism, the ruling class thinks they can control it. But no, you can't. And it's something that has to be actively combated. It, it has it's far beyond uh, politics to the left or the right. It is a type of totalitarianism where life has little or no value. So we must suppress uh, but, individual statutes. But that's, but that's my life. point, Sister Eleanor. That's my point. You're not, you're not suppressing anything. That's, that's my point. We have to understand, fascism is a strategy. Don't be, don't be deceived, don't they, for one second. They don't understand the implications of the policies, the kind of information they put out there. They don't understand precisely what they're doing. To pit people against one another is precisely what they're doing. Why do they do that? Because they understand that their, their, their destruction is inevitable. They know it's just a question of time for people begin to realize you know, they're being, that we've been duped. They understand that. So the only way, the only chance of any longevity is to pit people one another, against one another. To pit people cup. against one another, uh, to pit people against one, to pit people against one another, and so therefore they understand they understand the strategy. They understand precisely what they're doing. Fascism, right? Because on some level, I hear what you're saying. When, when they when they when they when they put fascism into motion, there's no telling what to, what to what extent the level of violence would 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 would, would take off. To what extent the the, the 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 level of violence is so egregious, you know, that no one could foresee the level of kind of carnage and violence. But they understand that, Sister Eleanor. They understand that. For them, the maintenance of power is more important than anything. Anything. That's what they're about. Maintenance of power and wealth. That's what they're about. How can they facilitate receiving wealth and, and power? Pitting people against one another. So while we're fighting each other, while poor people are fighting each other, they're reaping the economy blind. They're making tons and tons of money. That's precisely what they want. They understand at some point the economy is going to, it's going to fall. They understand that. The dollar is in disarray. I mean, the notion in terms of when you have this quantitative easing where the, 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 the Fed is constantly pumping money into the system, it does so because the system is fundamentally broke. They understand that. They understand that when people understand that, they're going to come at the rich and the wealthy. They understand that. So what is the strategy? You give them someone else to come after them. Come after, the, come after the, the Africans. Go after the, the Latinos. Go after the Jews. Go after the gays. Go after even women, progressive women. You see what I'm saying? So understand, we, we cannot deceive ourselves to believe that, in fact, that they're doing, that the, somehow the ruling class is doing us a favor by censoring Donald Trump. They're not doing us any favor. That's part of a strategy. That's what we have to understand. 
Well, okay, let's see. Uh, I we... agree. Oh, excuse me. Yeah, go ahead, sister. Go ahead, finish talking. Mike is yours. Thank you, Brother Africa. Brother Akeem, you are so right. But the issue remains fascism supersedes the ruling class and everything else. This man intends to mobilize people around lies based on hate and violence and destruction. This has to be controlled. Definitely Fox Network called Palestinians Arabs instead of calling them Palestinians. They focus on uh, Hamas rather than the atrocities happening in Palestine, and that's a problem. And the and the media is not um, factual and and informative and educational as it should be. But the phenomena of fascism is an animal of its own. And we must combat fascism. There seems to be a global movement. You see it in India. You see it. You see it in in, in Brazil today, as we speak. Mexico is attempting to have an election. Eighty-two persons have died running for public office or supporting candidates. So we must stand firm globally and nationally in the United States that we will combat fascism. And Sister Donald Eleanor. Trump is a fascist. Sister Eleanor. Real quickly, Brother Africa, real quickly, real quickly. Sister Eleanor, do you understand why fascism sweeping the globe? CIA strategy. CIA strategy. Go back and look at the role CIA play in terms of its involvement in European governments. It's no, it's no coincidence you know, that someone like Zelensky is head of Ukrainian of the Ukraine. You know, there's no, there's no question why they, they, the fascist the head of the Austrian uh, People's Party is a, is, a, is a Nazi. This is all orchestrated by the CIA. They spend billions of dollars in terms of corrupting systems, corrupting individuals, propping individuals up in positions of power to carry out fascism. Carry out Nazism. That's precisely why it exists. It's not. It's not some mistake. It's not an, an accident. It's. 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 It's done by the Bolsonaro. It's you no. Know, it's, it's, it's. Listen. The kind of manipulation employed by the CIA in terms of making sure Bolsonaro retaining power, including the setting up the Lula Lula da Silva in terms of his aspiration to become you know, second term of presidency. Clearly, you know, uh, when you talk about the role of CIA in terms of facilitating, you know, fascism or Nazism or whatever you want to call it, understand. That this is all by design. It's not a fluke. It's by design. It's consciously decided and done. And so what's what we got to understand? And so when they do something, we got to think scientifically. We got to think in terms of we got to think in terms of 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 chess. We can't think in terms of checkers. We got to think in terms of chess because the last, the first the one thing mm-hmm. that they want to do once we we buy into this nonsense. And by the way, a lot of people on the left are buying this nonsense that. that they got rid of Trump. They're saying it's a good thing. It's not a good thing. Because now you create a precedent, and now they get rid of left-wing voices. It's not an intelligent thing to think to do. We must think in terms of chess and not checkers, and I'll close with that. Okay, let's take call the last four numbers, call the 0796. Your question or comment, call the 0796. 
The mic is yours. Yes, call 0796. Going once. Going twice. Last chance to speak. 0796. Okay. They had um, number in the on the board to speak, I guess. They don't want to speak no longer, so we're going to move forward. All right, panelists, this is what we're going to do. Right now, we're going to take a vacation break, and when we come back, we're going to deal with part two. Then we'll have theme tonight. Um, this is a continuation from last week. There were some real important articles, I think, that we need to discuss and see how they may impact on our people's daily lives. And we're going to have that discussion when we come back. This is Africa on the move. We'll be right back. What if Martin had Twitter and all that civil rights talk, man, I wouldn't want to hear it. This integration been disintegrating. Better off in our own ghettos with our own situation. His last speech got him assassinated. Black business was booming. It wasn't just a consumer. Controlling our narrative. We have more marriages. And see what the damage did. They ain't that bad a bitch. And welfare did it's way worse than the slavery. I'll never be an agent. I don't care what they pay me. Seemed like Nip had the same old story. If we pay a black hater, tell a different allegory. Like Pearl Harbor and 9-11 was a mystery. Supremacy will go the extent to keep their history alive. All I'm saying, if these leaders was alive, alive. who be on the internet trying to divide? divide. Use a hotel hustler, uh. trying to be a people of that low vibe structure. Agree to disagree, and we ain't got to tear our own down. Argue in silence, or forever be our own downfall. All I want to say is that we're giving it away. Soul ain't for sale, and the devil is a fake. Argue with the silence, but don't let it steal our faith. Hide behind doors, but don't ever show our face. Cause if mom had Twitter, Malcolm had Twitter. Be our own people do the trolling. Just be on ignorance and do the scolding. Where we going? Cause if Mon had Twitter, then Malcolm had Twitter. It'd be our own people do the trolling. Just be on ignorance and do the scolding. Where we going? Sometimes the key to life you're looking for be right in front of you. Tried to show my man hidden colors, he said nothing new. I said, what if we've been lied to most of our freaking lives? Every year coming tonight, and you ain't speaking right, your arrogance precedes you. What if your faith did? I spoke to God on Wednesday, he said most of it's basic. Million dollar mindset to be flying, stay hungry. Hieroglyphics writing on walls you couldn't take from me. A man laid dead in the street today. I must have bumped my head. Fly away, I wanna get high today. Who 
got five on my little bundle of temporary. Man, I want to live long enough to be legendary. Your statistics said by now that I'm going to be dead and buried. But when I heard your voice, it seems as if we met already. And I'm march for our rights, that civil, the same purpose. Two different tribes and we fighting the same person. Could it be that our eyes was deceiving us? We had to have faith when nobody believed in us. Cosmic companionship sustained me after my husband was assassinated and gave me the strength to make my contribution to carrying forward his unfinished work. A man laid dead in the street today. I must have bumped my head and landed in 1940 or something, I swear. And all I have is love and joy to give. I need to We'd like to welcome you back on the moon. We will make our transition to deal with a continuation, part two, Tulsa 1921 and today. Um, that was the interesting articles that we chosen for this program to have a discussion, and I think it's probably a good article to start off with that is titled Capitalism at Work. Cuba came by much-needed syringes. It's written by W.T. Whitney Jr. on May the 29th, 2021, in the Marxist Lineage Today. I think, Sister Shirley, when you came on earlier, you had some issues. You'd like to talk maybe something about a reference to what's going on in Cuba. So let's take this article about capitalism at work. What is about capitalism being at work and its impact on Cuba, uh, Sister Shirley? Yeah. Capitalism is at work in overdrive in uh, in Cuba. Um, the you know I I don't know I I'm I'm almost at a point I keep on thinking of this sixty years of keeping uh, people under a, a r- relentless uh, blockade. And uh, um, this is something that the United States has been able to uh, maintain basically unchallenged. And um, as I said earlier, uh, with a combination of, of several uh, recent problems in the world, including the pandemic, something that Cuba has been trying very hard uh, to to work to get its vaccines uh, tested and available. Um, that Cuba is at a very very difficult point. There's a, a food shortage in Cuba. Um, Again, uh, uh, not having spare parts to be able to repair machinery that uh, they can use in a variety of areas in in, uh, their society. Um, And capitalism is, is a killer, is what it is. Uh, it is uh, it is at work uh, in uh, in what's happening in Nicaragua right now. All of the great successes that that Nicaragua has achieved 
over just the last couple of years have been hidden from the media. And the U.S. has been orchestrating the narrative. So here it is. You've got all these countries with sanctions against them. Basically, it is is, uh, like military attacks on these countries except the the weapon here is using the laws as sanctions and all of it is illegal under uh uh international law and united nations uh conventions um if you look at venezuela uh, th- this is another hell that has been unfolding now for the last four to five years. And uh, uh, nothing can the U.S. People can, let, let me just take Vijay Prasad as an example of someone who I think is very good at being able to articulate the, the and speaking of the word, word evil, the evilness of U.S. capitalism, um, that what the United States has been able to do is to completely destroy people even though we've got modern ways of, of of sharing information about what's really going on the united states is able to do that without any any kind of control now i know that there there's a reason for that I know that uh, the United States is extremely good about uh, pressing hard on their so-called allies to go with them uh, and in starving uh, other people and putting on sanctions and add Iran to that. Um, But this way of doing business by sanctions uh, has ruining whole millions millions of people are being affected by it all at the same time it's quieter than a war but it has had devastating um uh consequences uh for people and uh, if you take the figure that is uh, uh, acknowledged about Venezuela appears that probably 40 to 50 and maybe as many as 60,000 people's death in Venezuela can be tied to United States sanctions. This is how capitalism works in overdrive, and it's doing it. Um, anyway, I think I'll stop there. Thank you. Sister Eleanor, as you look at this article, Capitalism at Work, Cuba can invite much-needed syringes. Um, what major points of interest you would like to share with our listening audience today? Sister Eleanor. Whenever, well, 
whenever you interfere with a country's infrastructure, when you're able to interfere with public transportation, with food supplies, uh, with uh, medical treatment, being unable to buy ventilators, and unable to buy uh, syringes, having the U.S. purchase uh, the the Swiss produced syringes is outrageous. It's a type of genocide. And I think the great thing about this article is that it brings uh, to the attention, to the public, what's happening in Cuba. And we know that from the bombing of uh, the Palestinians, uh, for 11 days that they are having infrastructure problems. And this is a type of passive-aggressive death. you're, You're dooming people to death because they do not have access to basic medical supplies because they don't have operating buses and gasoline to go across town or to the next village for medical treatment. So I see this as uh, shocking and outrageous. And uh, according to the article, the Global Health Partners, Cuba needs uh, roughly 30 million syringes for their mass COVID vaccine campaign, and they're about 20 million short. So as the article says, that solidarity organizations and nations who have solidarity with with just basic human rights, that health, education, and food need to do whatever they can to get their medical ships in to supply this much-needed equipment to Cuba. And... Uh, I uh, appreciate the articles and the research that uh, your producers and that you produce. This is how we politicize ourselves and our neighbors. Legislation has been in place that forbids the U.S. old companies from selling goods to Cuba, uh, syringes included, since uh, I believe the 1960s with the uh, uh, Burkade, what was it, uh, when Kennedy thought that uh, he was going to invade Cuba or we were going to be at war with Cuba. Well, the world has changed. And a Cold War that is full of propaganda is one thing when it's the Soviets and the U.S., But what we're doing right now has a physical impact on people's lives. The FIS physical, AL, as well as uh, impact on their health. Whatever affects their economy ultimately affects the health and well-being of the Cuban people. So I stand in solidarity with the Cuban people. Uh, I, the article is very informative. 
uh, offices of foreign companies presumably are seeking legal advice on how to address this issue. But at this point, I don't understand why other countries could not just assist the Cubans, especially the EU, the European Union. I'm, I, I really don't understand. So if one of the panelists or someone from the audience could explain what uh, economic barriers or social barriers are in place to stop other nations from supplying the resources that Cuba now needs. Cuba doesn't export guns and bombs. It exports let's, doctors. Let's, let's hold off to that discussion for a second, Sister Eleanor. We will entertain that. But let me get Brother Haki and Moses' take on this question of capitalism that worked on this article. Brother Haki, when you read this article, what issue stood out the most uh, for you? Well, and uh, in answering your question, let me just um, deal with uh, sister, some of Sister Eleanor's concerns in terms of why there seems to be this kind of um, uh, complicity when it comes to uh, European nations actually participating in the boycott of Cuba as opposed to standing to the U.S. and telling them, hell no, we're not going to do it. It's inhumane. We're going, to, we're, going to, we're going to trade with Cuba because it's a humane thing to do. Well, a couple of reasons. Number one, the economic relationship that exists between America and the United States. You've got to understand. Uh, these economic relationships uh, go surpasses uh, just just in terms of you know dollars and cents. It all goes gets down to also military relationships. Also, when we talk about NATO, we talk about NATO in terms of um, you know its kind of expansionist policies, the kind of things that they do abroad. Uh, they do those things in terms of uh, intervention, a military intervention under the guise of uh, of the offices of the United States government. So we have all these, so historically these kind of relations that exist between the United States and Europe are very much in play. And one thing we had to understand, so when we talk about this question in terms of class, then we have to understand that the wealthy people in Europe have the same vested interests as the wealthy people in America. That is dominate, world domination. So how do you achieve that domination? Well, you work together to oppress other nations around the world. And so this is why you have this kind of relationship. It was why European nations refused to stand up and tell the United States, no, 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 we can't do it. Even though the masses of people may be adamantly opposed to U.S. policy in terms of black and Cuba, their governments are in the pockets of the United States, and so they have these vested interests that have been cultivated over a long period of time uh, 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 between the United States and leading, the leading uh, economic elites in European nations. And so we talk about the Bretton Woods, uh, Bretton Woods um, uh, um, meetings, and we talk about and the importance of Bretton Woods is that at that point, they, when they strategize economics and how the world will be organized, and they understood that the United States' place was not only to ensure uh, uh, reserve, the dollar becomes a reserve currency, but more importantly, to make sure that the U.S. is in a position to be the, the, the god dog of sort, to be the, um, uh, you know, to be uh, the, 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 point, the point person in terms of, uh, in, in terms of imperialism's appeal. So clearly, uh, when we, so we talk about this relationship between the, the United States and, 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 and Europe, and we understand historically those relationships are, are, are not going to – anything short of revolution, the reality is those relationships are going to prevail. So that's just the core reality. The second point, Sister Eleanor, I think one of the things when we talk about the resistance in terms of European nations, in terms of, um, in terms of standing up U.S. and telling them to hell no, that's inhumane, we're going to do it, we're going to trade with Cuba, we're going to provide them with the syringes that they need, 
is because the the, 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 the the role of the dollar. So during Bretton Woods, when they established the, the dollar as reserve currency, essentially what they're saying, America is free to create its own currency. America don't have, don't have to produce anything. It can simply go to a computer, hit the key, there goes, there's a billion dollars created, just like that. America is the only country in the world, in the history of the country of the world, that can do that. So given that kind of power, and given the fact that they agreed that no country would operate without receiving those dollars, the U.S. has tremendous latitude, tremendous power to take the European nations what they can and they can't do. Because the moment they say, you know, we're going to trade with Cuba despite your sanctions, then what happened, they put into to motion uh, means to sabotage the economy. And they can do that very easily simply because of the control of the dollar. See, this is the, this is the problem. And then this is super, and superimposed upon that, Sister Eleanor, we've got to understand, when we talk about the demands of the dollar and we talk about inflation, one thing we have to understand, when you talk the reason why politicians talk about inflation, why it's so important, is because it, it speaks to the value of the dollar. With high inflation, which means that those dollars are worth, worth very little. So in order for those European nations to pay their debt, they have to pay increasingly large amount of their own currency in terms of accounting for that decline in terms of the value of that dollar. So for an economic standpoint, when them see in their interest of going along with the United States simply because of the deduce to go against the United States, means that they undermine you know, their economy. And they can do that very easily because, they control it, because the U.S. controls the dollar. And all countries have to have that reserve currency as a natural reserve in terms of being able to function. So this is one of the reasons why they have, they have this, the second reason why they're so afraid in terms of standing to the U.S. And I should say this, and I'm going to close. It's important that we understand that there are only two countries in the world that can stand up to the United States, Russia and China. Cuba stands up to the United States, okay, um, but, but because it's such a small country, we're talking about 11 to 12 million people, it's a very small country, it does a very tremendous job in terms of standing up to the United States despite the atrocities inflicted against it. It does a very good job. But those two countries, two giant countries, Russia and China, not only are they giant in terms of their populations, but because of the kind of steps that they're taking in terms of controlling their own currency. And so the U.S. attempt in terms of undermining their economy by use of dollars is not, not, very difficult thing to do. Because in the case of Russia, what Russia does is say, you know what, we have a sovereign wealth fund. Uh, we have a large fund set aside for the sole purpose of our people need housing, they need health care, they need education, blah, 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 blah. We have a sovereign wealth fund to make sure we set up so that we have the money provided for our people to make sure uh, the people have what they need. Their position is that, well, listen, what we're going to do, we, we strategically put a lot of dollars in the sovereign wealth fund because we anticipate the United States making this kind of move. And they were absolutely correct. And so, therefore, they're in a position strategically now to say, you know what? We got enough rubles, enough of our own currency, where we actually can supplement our sovereign wealth fund and get rid of the dollar at the same time. And it's precisely what they're doing. So the U.S. has very minimal control in terms of being able to affect uh, Russia's policies or Russia's behavior. So if Russia wanted to send syringes to Cuba, syringes going to go to Cuba. That's no question about that. As far as China is concerned, China's a different boat. China has large investments in the United States. And so therefore, and strategically, they're, they're caught between, you know, you know, how do you protect those investments and how do you move forward? Uh, and so in that regard, China realizes that it's fundamentally inhumane not to, to block the pose and blockade on Cuba. But at the same token, they got over 2 billion people they have to feed and house. And so, therefore, strategically, they're not as free as Russia to say, okay, I'm going to provide Cuba with syringes, simply because the reality is that if, because such so many Chinese investments in dollars that U.S. could essentially uh, uh, undermine uh, China's growth immensely. And so, therefore, China is very strategic in terms of how it moves. It doesn't mean that at some point China 
I'm trying to get to the point <laughs> where they begin to see things like Russia, and they're, they're disvesting from a lot of uh, holdings and dollars. They're getting rid of the dollars, but they're not there yet. They still got a tremendous amount of, of holdings and dollars, and they do so for strategic reasons because as long as they got investment assets that are, that are, that are owned in America, then it has some control in terms of you know uh, what America will do and won't do simply because if America moves against China, then it potentially hurt the investment of Americans right here in America. And so, therefore, China, from a strategic point of view, uh, uh, is very cautious in terms of how it moves. But I certainly hope that's, that clears it up. You know, I, you know, I try to make it as clear as I could. There's a lot of things popping in my mind when I talk about it because there's so much stuff that we need to talk about in terms of international relationship, in terms of how things work. But I'm certainly hope I expose at least enough for you to get a basic understanding in terms of, you know, why European nations won't stand up to America when it commit these kind of atrocities around the world, particularly against Cuba. Next, we'll go to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, capitalism at work, your response to this article. Well, you know, obviously capitalism is, is uh, socialized production and private appropriation, and so you know, they will exploit any situation they can. And, and uh, they hate Cuba because Cuba has taken off a part of their market. Um, the, the, uh, with the nationalization of various industries, et cetera. Um, but Cuba is, 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 is principles and is guided by Marxism, Leninism. And, uh, and, uh, and so it's theoretically sound. And, uh, as long as the people continue to study and and um, adhere to dialectical and historical materialism in terms of their theoretical outlook, um, things will be fine. Uh, the U.S. You, the people united will never be defeated. The U.S. is going to continue to try. You can't expect the the the, the enemy to stop being the enemy, and uh, we understand that. And so. Uh, the bourgeoisie, we don't want to be better defenders of the bourgeoisie than the bourgeoisie itself because, but, uh, you know, we, we have to stand with the people, the, the working class and what hurts and helps them and, and be grounded in, in material reality and not just ideas, um, because ideas have to be applied to the situation. And, uh, uh, but Cuba with the syringes and, and, uh, all the problems, uh, it, 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 if it, it sticks to its position, uh, I think the people of the world will, will sooner or later gravitate towards their their interests. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. And right now we'll make our transition to another article as relates to our theme tonight. We're talking about Tulsa 1921 and today. Part two, and it's titled, and to our listening audience, please take some time to check this out. It's article titled, Book Review, Washington Bullets, A History of the CIA, Coups and Assassination. Uh, it's an interesting article that was written on the 21st of May, 2021, um, from the Marxilinians today. Um, and when we look at this article, one thing comes to mind for me, and that is that the CIA is definitely an a institution that has committed millions of crimes against humanity. That's what it shows. 
organization and for them to make policy in your name, you should be raised all kind of hell. So starting off with you, Sister Eleanor, let's start off with you. When you look at this particular book review, this article, it shows the historical legacy of the CIA and what it really does against humanity, the crimes it's committed. What was your response once you read this article? What came to your mind, Sister Eleanor? Well, um, Brother Africa, I thought to myself, what's happening that in different nations, a few people can be bought off to sabotage their nation for dollars? And I hate to transgress, but from the last article with Brother Akeem, I saw not only the impact of U.S. imperialism, but I saw the impact of U.S. of world capitalism and greed. Because as he explained it, the vestiture that other nations have is that the U.S. is a large central market. And capitalists everywhere on the globe want to saturate this market. There are very few nation states where you have so many consumers, and this is a consumer culture. So that's why I guess Japan and uh, other countries aren't ignoring the U.S. because they are concerned about sanctions because they have U.S.-based companies trading as incorporated and trading in the United States, ergo they're subject to U.S. laws. So I see that not as a problem of U.S. capitalism, but as a problem of greed and global capitalism. Now, as for this article, uh, it was phenomenal in that uh, it talked about uh, the history of the CIA and its later director, William J. Burns, uh, continuing its long tradition, uh, focusing in on Russia and China, along with North Korea, and said that Iran should not be allowed to get a nuclear weapon. But it made me think back to an election I heard about, I believe, in Syria in the 1950s, when uh, there was a democratically elected, a democratically elected uh, leader. And uh, someone in Great Britain said, what are these people doing sitting on our oil? And they did not want this leader in power. And I understand that the CIA, with the help of only 10 or 12 people, was able to support a coup. Now, I don't know whether this is false or true, but when I read this article, I suddenly saw the impact of individual greed. Uh, I saw the uh, the lack of pol- of social and political consciousness. That is not only a problem here, but other places. Because if the people were united, if there was some kind of national uh, solidarity, would would the CIA be able to back all these coups? Would would Salvador Allende in Chile not have been successful? Would uh, uh, Evo Morales, uh, Yama, the former president of Bolivia, 
who was deposed in a uh, 2019 U.S. back coup. Would that would that have happened? I I I don't know. Uh, but uh, this book I think is worthy of reading. I was interested in uh, how it would discuss the Shah of Iran, and uh, it was interesting how it went back uh, to the early 20th century, and uh, the CIA assisted in bloodbaths by providing uh, a list of communists with the uh, gift of its uh, assassination manual. What is this assassination manual? And it was uh, made me think of the Congo, uh, and, and it also made me think of uh, more recently what happened to our brother in Libya, Omar Gaddafi. When for a few moments I I saw a green flag up in Libya. So I I think it was a fascinating article and I am sure that uh the panelists will be able to shed uh helpful and supportive information to the public. And it's just a fascinating article. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. You know, Sister Shirley when you look at the CIA and its other intelligence agencies by the U.S., you will come to see clearly that they don't understand the concepts of human rights. They talk about Cuba and, and Cuba attitudes toward human rights. This is an excellent example of this concept of human rights doesn't even exist in that world. So, to Shirley, mm-hmm. what you took from this article? I, I took a lot from this article uh primarily because it was uh it was uh, an article reviewing VJ Prasad's um book and i would recommend anybody uh if you're not familiar with VJ Prasad to even go in and go into uh look around for some of the webinars where he has been a participant. He is a very interesting, a very knowledgeable speaker. There are a couple of things I just wanted to highlight uh, in, in this review that was done. One thing I was intrigued with is the, the nine steps that are supposedly the modus operandi uh, involving what the CIA does and did uh, in order to bring a, bring about a coup. And I'd like to just read those. Uh, the first one is lobby public opinion. And I will alter that just a little bit to say uh, manage, manage uh, the media is what that's really going to mean. The second item is appoint the right man on the ground. Third, make sure the generals are ready. Four, a very important one and one that is most prevalent today in states 
that are under heavy sanction, and that is number four, make the economy scream. Five, diplomatic isolation. Number six, organize mass protest, green light, assassination, and then deny all of it. And this is a, a formula that we can, as as we look back at all all the assassinations that the CIA conduct, conducted over the years, we see many of these steps um, in motion. Um, and also, I thought was interesting. I, I was taking note of uh, the fact that uh, uh, Persad had just had like like a one-liner in here about Cuba and uh, a CIA officer uh, who was, uh, who had gone to Mexico where Fidel and Raul had gone after they left and Fidel had gotten out of prison and this is after the Moncada attack and all that had taken place. And that is where uh, that Fidel, Raul, meet up with Che Guevara and begin their uh, plans, take, uh, making their plans in order to go back and do a guerrilla war in Cuba. And I was thinking how far ahead this meant that the that the CIA was tracking Fidel, Raul, Che. Um, the amount of heinous crimes that were committed uh, are, are uh, you, you, you can't count them all. Uh, most are indescribable. And the CIA, of course, has absolutely nothing to do with uh, human rights and uh, only knows how to manipulate, uh, they are manipulators extraordinaire and a tool that we still don't even know the depth of what it does and how it does, does it. Uh, but I, I thank Vijay Prashad for having written uh, such a, a long-ranging uh, book on all of this, uh, in particular making sure that he covered uh, Patrice Lumumba and Thomas Sankara. Um, and I think it is uh, fascinating, and, and with most books that start to talk about the CIA, and its uh, impact and how it began to do what it does always starts with the Guatemala uh, coup in 1954 where Jacoba Arbenz uh, was taken out. 
and if anybody is particularly in, uh, interested in how that went down, it's a it's a very interesting story, and uh, it's been captured in a book called Bitter Fruit. So anyway, that's it. Thank you. Thank you, Shirley. Brother Haki, you know they say they don't change any tactic or strategy in which they were successful in. They will never give it up. Looking at this book review, it seems to reinforce that. What is your take from looking at this book review when it comes to Washington bullets and history of the CIA coups and assassination? Yeah, well, you know, his, you know, he's absolutely correct in terms of the history of the CIA. And one of the things, when we talk about the, the evolution of the CIA, we can't dismiss the role John Dulles played in terms of facilitating uh, the kind of cloak and dagger uh, policy uh, familiar, uh, so, so familiar with the CIA operations. Uh, one of the things that when we talk about John Foster Dulles, one of the things that's very interesting is the guy has large investment in terms of uh, uh, businesses throughout the world. Uh, he was affiliated with a large bank. And so this notion in terms of, you know, wealthy people prospering was something that didn't, didn't uh, go unnoticed by people like John Foster Dulles. And he was able to facilitate something like the creation of the CIA in part because not only had a lot of other wealthy people whose position was that we take what we want, um, but, uh, you know, uh, it, was, it was generally recognized that, you know, the best way to, to achieve an end is to, is, is, is to simply uh, utilize the military and go take it. So clearly the, the, the CIA, even though it's a, a, a civilian organization, it operates like a military organization. So clearly the focus of the CIA can never be humane. It's never designed to be humane. And so all the things they do and all the uh, strategies they employ is geared toward one thing, the enrichment and empowerment of the ruling class, period. That's it. And so for people who think the CIA had a vested interest in terms of America generally, uh, the reality is no. They have no vested interest in America. They have an interest in the ruling class, in their pocketbooks. And that's precisely what it does, and I'll close with that. Thank you, Brother Hackey and Brother Moses. Looking at this particular history of the CIA and being a tool for the U.S. government, it, it, I beg you to ask the question again. Why would anybody in their right mind would go over and say they're proud to be American? Your response, Brother Moses. Well, the CIA is part of the state, the government, uh, and the government is capitalist and it's against working class interests and this uh, antagonistic contradiction between the, the state and the working class interests. And the sooner we accept that, the, the sooner we can move on and, and deal with what's really going on. Um, the CIA is, is uh, like I said, is an instrument uh, of the ruling class's state and the and uh, the states, all the states serve the interests of the ruling class, not just the CIA. And so we have, we have to um, organize to, um, to get rid of this state, basically, and, and, and bring about a new, a new democratic socialist uh, country. And uh, that's the problem. Uh, all these things are just documenting the the uh, concrete examples of how the USA spreads imperialism around the world, whether it be with Salvador Allende or or today with Nicaragua or 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 um, Venezuela, Cuba, 
the U.S. is the ruling class has not changed and it's not going to change. And as long as the state is the state, it will be doing what it's doing. And that's just the nature of the beast. And as soon as we accept that, we can move on and, and realize that we got to get rid of the state. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. And let's make our transition to our third article for the night, where talk comes from popular, popular resistance.org. The title is Activists Shut Down Sucker Israeli Arm Factory in a Week. It was published on the 27th of May, 2021. And this article, what it really talks about is maybe how workers can identify themselves as a sector and how they can have impact on conscious movements, etc. But in this case, the workers decided to do something that would be very significant in terms of showing their support for the Palestinian people. Brother Haki, as a worker, and looking at workers around the world, what do you take from this particular article as it relates to the role that workers can play? And when you address the question, for me, it becomes a question of, why it's important for workers to be politically educated. Because with political education, I think they can be a lot more effective workers in terms of bringing about impact on movements throughout the world. No response from this article, Brother Haki. You know, kudos to, um, you know, to, the, to, the, to, the, to the brothers and sisters, you know, who, 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 who uh, sabotaged uh, the, uh, that factory. Uh, clearly, uh, one of the things I think, um, Brother Africa, is that, you know, when we, when we talk about this kind of action, it speaks to a certain kind of consciousness that's so pertinent, uh, it should be pertinent uh, to the masses of people, specifically workers. And so we talk about the, the importance of terms of workers' consciousness is because one of the things is that, you know, there is a, a social contract that exists, that exists in society. And whether we want to acknowledge or not, uh, you know, Brother Moses earlier alluded to the fact that there is the, there is the, the capitalists and the workers. Well, clearly the capitalist responsibility to the workers is to make sure that you create a situation in which they're paid, that they, 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 they enjoy the, the fruits of their labor. In other words, you know, as the profits increase, so should the wages of the laborers. And so, therefore, without some fundamental understanding in terms of that historical relationship between uh, labor and, and, and between business and labor, then workers tend to get, catch a shot in the stick. So this kind of consciousness that's so important in terms of bringing about the kind of, uh, the kind of change that we see it's only possible when people are, in fact, conscious. So it's extremely important that the workers become conscious. And this article just uh, underscores just how important, you know, a conscious worker can be and the kind of attributes, the kind of contributions it can make to humanity. Okay, so for Shirley, your take from this article as a worker, what would you say to your workers in terms of how they can make a contribution to the ongoing struggle in Palestine? First of all, first of all, in this uh, in this situation uh, here, is that the 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 object of of, of what was being manufactured, I'll say, bore a direct relation on the tools of death Israel was using against. Palestinians. It, it was circuitry systems that were being used for both drones and, and also for tanks. And 
being involved in that, when you are aware of of things that are going on outside the world from where you work and what's going on between peoples beyond. That's very valuable knowledge and influences your concept um, of as, as a worker and I believe gives you great encouragement for what you can begin to envision for yourself in solidarity with other workers. So uh, I just think that this article uh, demonstrates that and uh, uh, an informed worker is uh, is a, a very needed thing uh uh because uh we will be led forward uh by it thank you all right so Eleanor, you'll take from this article activists shut down israeli um factory in a week your response to this article this is Eleanor, what did you take from it educated and, and Sister Shirley said it all. Um, in short, an informed workforce has an informed uh, workforce has the potential to affect uh, geopolitics and economics, and that's what it's about. When I read this article, it also made me think of the U.S. and how U.S. workers are restrained in so many ways, their, their democratic rights, their very basic human rights, and that uh, they risk losing housing, access to housing and food if they're arrested in a demonstration, if they live in any type of subsidized housing. And increasingly in the U.S., Working-class people are dependent on this type of institutionalized housing. So um, this article in particular showed me that maybe uh, I first thought about the access to uh, free speech in reality that apparently is happening in, in the United Kingdom and the fact that workers have a right to organize, to have taken over this factory, to uh, lodge legitimate complaints against the police force and others that are affecting or interfering with their political action. But definitely, as Sister Shirley said, an educated workforce, a politically informed workforce, um, will affect not only its own, own community, it affects this community by taking action where it stands. And those actions have a greater action than it in fact It empowers uh, us by standing in solidarity, but also limiting these uh, resources from reaching the uh, oppressors of the Palestinian people and uh it, it gives me hope and that there is uh, democracy 
somewhere and other places and that it's not only a right to assemble, but it's a right to take political action. Like in the 20th century, when workers could shut down factories, have bus strikes without any ramifications from the landlords and the bosses. And uh, just to transgress back to our last article on the CIA, we saw two persons in that article lobbying Congress to intervene in Chile because Salvador Allende had decided to nationalize the copper industry. Do you mean this is the work of lobbyists, that it should cost tens of thousands of people their lives? This is outrageous. So what this article, back to our article on the Palestinian issue, we need to be able to lobby our Congress just as hard to take action, pro-worker, pro-environmentalist, pro-human rights, and, and any action that allows this to happen is what we as workers should support domestically. And I stand in complete solidarity with the workers in the United Kingdom and this uh, repressing the uh, Israeli company uh, and not allowing uh, this death machine to go forward in their town, not on their watch. Blocking the entrance of the factory is phenomenal. Hundreds, they said, local community members in Lancaster were reported to have uh, rallied in support of the Palestinian Action Group. That is uh, tremendous. Education is liberation. I think that was W.D. Du Bois who said that. All right, Brother Moses, your take from this article, Brother Moses. Yeah, well, I think, you know, we have to recognize that what Marx brought to the Karl Marx brought to the table was political economy. That it's not a question of relationship between people and economic goods, but it's a relationship between people and people. That is it is people who 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 get together and decide how they're gonna distribute uh economic goods and services. And so, you know, as consciousness of people uh, is raised, they are able to affect the political economy. Uh, um, and so, you know, definitely we need, that's just, that's, that is the, the future uh, in terms of the future being bright. We need educated people who, who understand the relationship between them and the, and the ruling class and the working class and the various forces, the petty bourgeoisie, and understand that uh, that they, the working class interest is antagonistic to the ruling class's interest, and that we we must unite, and that our unity lies in our strength and organization. We need unions and political parties, and a political party, and um, so you know the, the the name of the game is 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 educate oneself to to the concrete conditions that one is faced with and the political forces that are allied against against one and and to know how to 
to deal with them, how to organize the the opposition, how to organize and uh, fight the powers that be. And so, you know, the more we organize, the more we fight. And in, in, in the fight, we will get gain more consciousness, and um, eventually we will triumph. Thank you. Thank you as well, Brother Moses. And I'll find the article for today's program. This is part two, Tulsa, nineteen twenty-one today. Um, you know, one of the things you mentioned earlier is the issue of one of the things capitalism seeks to do is to control and dominate labor. Now, when I read this article, um, I wonder if we could put together could, could, uh, connecting the points or the dots. This article titled. If you want to get a chance on USA Today, it's titled High School Basketball Powerhouses Set to Form National League. Again, the title is High School Basketball Powerhouses Set to Form National Leagues. Now, you may ask the question, why is this article significant? One may raise the issue of looking at how future sports will be governed, dictated, and controlled, again, by the powerful and by the elite, particularly as it relates to African communities or communities of non-European. Here now we come up putting together a powerhouse high school basketball league, and we're exposing these youth and treating them as if they are professionals at a very, very young age. But what that really does is they get to set and choose not only who will make the next level of professional basketball, but also who have access to them. So, panelists, when y'all read this article, I'm just wondering, um, what are some of the concerns and issues that um, came to your mind that we need to be aware of, particularly when we talk about this concept of sports imperialism? You see, now the West is trying to dominate basketball leagues and, and on the continent of Africa and throughout the world. We see now, they're looking at now, trying to dominate the kids when they're in middle school to high school level, where's all this lead us down the road to, Brother Haki? What's your scenario on this, this particular phenomenon that's taking place under this concept that I call, or we call, sports imperialism? Well, let us never underestimate the power of entertainment. Uh, one of the things that we had to be very concerned about, given the decline of, of, of capitalism, they're desperate in terms of maintaining some type of longevity. Certainly, one of the ways they can do that is to form in as much entertainment as possible. And, of course, basketball is a very exciting game. People love it globally. The problem is that when you talk about elevating these young people to superstar letters, superstar level, essentially what they're doing is that they're making role models of these very young people. And the question, of course, is why would you make role models of very young people? Well, clearly, it serves two purposes. One, I think, uh, in terms of... Uh, Making them role models, it, it, it serves as a sort of a, um, a, a sort of a uh, encouragement uh, to younger people who may aspire to be like them. In that con- in that context, it encourages people to stay away from those things which they really they should know about, more in line with pursuing things which are entertaining. Uh, secondly, I think it also elevates these young people to, in, in effect, elevates them to ambassadors. So the very pressing, very intricate, very complex kinds of concerns that we have in terms of how society is organized, reality is these young people are ill, of, Ill, uh, Ill, uh, <clears throat> uh, 
uh, uh, ill-advised uh, or unable to actually foment any real concrete understanding in terms of these very complex systems and how they interact with people in the, on, 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 the, uh, on the planet. So that context, what they want is they want people who are, who are incapable of essentially being leaders on a political level, but capable of being leaders on a social or entertainment level. So clearly we've got to be very concerned about this. And the same strategy they utilize in Africa in terms of promotion of basketball in Africa. So on one level, it's sort of insulting in terms of, in terms of this kind of strategy. But then again, uh, as we said before, if the strategy works, then, 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 why, uh, then why discard it? So this is clearly one of the strategies they're going to use going into the future because, you know, basketball, like I say, is very, very important to, young, to, to people. It is very, very exciting. And so, therefore, if you can create ambassadors who are incapable of living up to what it is to be an ambassador, then you have absolute control over them, and you have absolute control over them. You have absolute control over populace, in particular the younger populace. So clearly, we got to be very concerned about this kind of strategizing and understanding what this all what all this entails. Sister Shirley, what you took from this article: high school basketball player, basketball powerhouses set to form a national league. What's the implication that you saw in this article that? People need to be aware about the game that capitalism is playing with our use today. Your take, Sister Shirley. Well, well, when I read this article, I, I found it very odd, starting with the names of the schools that are contained in the first paragraph. Now, all of these schools sound to me that these are private schools. Oak Hill mm-hmm. Academy. Uh, got another uh, academy in uh, Bradenton, Florida. Uh, Monteverde Academy in Florida. La Lumiere School in La Porte, Wasatch. So I, I was a, a little confused from the beginning that these look like all private schools and yet we're forming something that was was purported to be a national interscholastic basketball conference. Uh, maybe it's my ignorance on how scholastic basketball, basketball is organized, but I would have assumed that such a thing would have had a much broader participation of schools throughout the country. Um, and it, but from a general standpoint, um, I think it, it is dangerous when you're, you're, you're selecting uh, young people to basically end up uh, performing what will be later on a, a, an ambassador kind of role and uh, to, to, to basically kind of have to go out and perform and being in the public eye also causes uh, one sometimes to, to uh, have issues regarding uh, confidence and their ability to, to to be so, but I I will have to uh, basically admit my stumbling over the first paragraph 
did not allow me to get too much further down because mm-hmm. I didn't exactly understand. So if anybody can enlighten me, I'd appreciate it. Okay, we go to Sister Eleanor. Sister Eleanor, your take on this article. The idea of a national conference of basketball for children, I think it's uh, I think it's a little too much pressure for our children. I think it could have adverse effects on their behavioral health and also the scholarship programs. And it, it seems like it could be lim- further limiting uh, uh, scholarship access to just a few and uh, far too few schools. Um, uh, Is this something that uh, school systems and different municipalities will organize from the, from the, throughout, through the school system, or is this NBC's little project? Uh, It wasn't clear to me, but uh, it didn't sound like it would necessarily be productive for children. Children are, you know, adolescents are going through a a major growth period in their life. They're very sensitive. Um, uh, We have a major issue in this country with women and children living in poverty. So how would this affect the poor? How would this, it didn't, the article didn't discuss on, on, and what it would bring to enrich the education of our children nationally, uh, locally, or otherwise. What is the purpose of this uh, conference? Uh, it, 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 to organize a, a league of, of children with a limited group of participants. I don't know, and I, also, I, I, don't, I didn't see the productivity in that, I didn't see it as necessarily being healthy and productive for children. Basketball is a wonderful sport, and maybe the ten schools or the few schools were just the startup academies or groups. But I didn't hear how um, wasn't clear to me how individual uh, educational uh, systems like, for example, the PG public schools, Prince George's County public schools, or the Atlanta, Atlanta public schools, or the Buffalo public schools, or the Los Angeles public schools. How will um, these thousands of schools throughout the country be able to participate in this league? And how will the, the how is the scope of participants being so narrowed. I wasn't clear on the selection process or the intent. Uh, there was some mention of scholarships and this kind of thing, but I didn't, I, I didn't see it as being a, 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 a great resource for children. And all children love basketball, and all children are great basketball players. And that doesn't mean they know how to – make hoops or get the ball in the net. It just means they know how to play together, and that's a wonderful thing. So someone will have to explain to me uh, the scope and range of this new uh, uh, high school league, please. Okay, let, 
Let's go to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, your thoughts on this article? Well, to me, it's just another money-making scheme. Um, as usual, you know, the 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 capitalist class, you know, has ways of putting together organizations in order to, to gain the revenue which comes from it. And uh, right now, they, for instance, they're talking about bringing back the USFL, the old, old football league. Um, I think Donald Trump actually owned one of the teams in that. And so I don't know, there's always going to be uh, capitalists are always going to be capitalists, and they're always going to be scheming and trying to figure out how, how they can uh, – um, expand their spheres of influence and, and revenues. And so this is just another one of those schemes as far as I'm concerned. Thank you. Okay, panelists, uh, we're done. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will ask for your final thoughts for today's program. This is Africa on the Moon. Yeah, words come to pass. Marcus, yeah, words come to pass. You can't get no food to eat. You can't get no money to spend. Oh. You can't get no food to eat. can't get no money to spend. Elijah and Luke 
That's right. Keep your head up. Welcome back to Africa on the Moon on the 6th day of June, 2021. This is two of Tulsa, 1921 in the day. We will participate tonight to give us our final thoughts for tonight. And we'll start off, we'll start off tonight. We're going to let Brother Moses lead us off with his final thoughts for tonight. Brother Moses, the mic is yours. Thank you, thank you, Brother Africa. Um, I think, you know, it's been interesting conversations, uh, interesting analysis. Um, we have to recognize that definitely it is a political economy, and so people, each individual person can make a difference uh, uh, in terms of the economy. Uh, it's not like this, these things are the, um, the money, the dollar bill, the, the, the car, the the uh, whatever economic good there is, it has no independent life, independent of human beings, and so you know we have to recognize that and and get involved in 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 consciousness raising in terms of learning how where things come from, who's who's being benefited from from the goods and services, how we contribute to uh, producing the goods and services, and recognizing our power as workers. And unite as workers to uh, to advocate for our interests. And this is the, the the more we get into the streets and protest and um, 
and uh, and raise our political consciousness, um, the more revolutionary we can become. It's a dialectical process. We have to stay grounded in the people and real people, and and uh, and not 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 become like the petty bourgeoisie class who's in the middle between the working class and the and the bourgeoisie kind of just speculating about what's good and what's bad and and uh, having no firm position in terms of the social order. Uh, the, the working class recognizes it has an antagonistic contradiction with the ruling class, irreconcilable. That it's, it's, you're either part of the solution or you're part of the problem, and that, you know, it's which side are you on, and there's no sitting in the middle. And so we, I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses, for your participation on today's program. And we now will go to Sister Eleanor. Sister Eleanor, we'd like to have your final thoughts for tonight. The mic is yours. Sister Eleanor. Um, Thank you for a wonderful show. In particular, I'd like to review some of the articles this evening. Uh, The interesting thing is that the article about the CIA, everything was rooted in petty bourgeois uh, social imperialism. How can the United Fruit Company determine the future of the people of Guatemala? How can a president be assassinated because he does what's best for his country and nationalizes the copper industry in Chile? How do we get to see Shea Chavera, uh, a body paraded in a laundry after a CIA-sponsored coup? And thank God that Castro survived hundreds, hundreds, over 500 assaults on his life. And so we have to remember that the workers on the ground have to pay attention, educate themselves, and as Brother Moses said, this is no joke. The interests of the people, of the nation, uh, labor and wealth, the wealth, the wealthy elite, no matter what country they are, is not the same, is not the best interest of either the nation whether it's Guatemala, whether it's Chile, Cuba, whether it's Iran, Afghanistan, the interest of the elite is not the interest of labor, the environment, or the peace. So with that in mind, we want to say stand firm and 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 stand firm with the people, united. We can never be defeated, and education is liberation, and have a great evening and a wonderful week. Bless you all. Thank you, Sister. Thank you, Sister Illinois. And next for Sister Shirley. Your final thoughts for tonight, Sister Shirley. The mic is yours. Thank you, uh, Brother Africa. Um, Appreciate the show this evening and the variety of topics that we have discussed and uh, been very interested in uh, the analysis in people's um, answers. It's been uh, very instructional. And um, 
tonight, I guess I am. Uh, I'm thinking a lot about solidarity, and they're particularly thinking about broadening of solidarity uh, with other groups on other issues, and. Um, I just wanted to to um, raise the fact that since we've been talking about the CIA tonight, I, I think I'm going to uh, dream about this, or dream, hell, it'll be a nightmare. I'm going to have a nightmare probably about the CIA. But um, I was just checking the news on the Peruvian election between Keiko uh, Fujimori and uh, Pedro Castillo, and uh, they're talking very CIA kind of talk, which is there's a razor-thin edge that Kiko Fujimori has over Pedro Castillo. This is classic, and I'm sure that it's going to, to be resolved by the CIA uh, that they will be the ones who who will who will make the decision that Fujimori is going to be the next president, and it's um, having issues like that uh, that we have to just broaden our uh, solidarity with other organizations and also focus on a variety of different issues uh, throughout the world. Um, So anyway, I'm going to leave it at that. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. We thank you, Sister Shirley. And Brother Haki, your final thoughts for tonight, Brother Haki. Well, I I certainly hope after tonight's program, people begin to get the – the seriousness of the challenges that uh, that are facing people, you know, in, in the society. Uh, clearly, uh, those positions of power um, realize that power is being threatened, and we do in and everything in terms of ensuring that power uh, persists. The reality is that when you talk about history, we all understand that your society's rise and society's fall. America is no different. Even with its technological advances, uh, it doesn't fundamentally stop the flow of history. History has a, uh, a a character of its own, and so therefore, uh, despite the attempts in terms of controlling our history, no human being on the planet has yet been able to determine the uh, the flow of history. The U.S. is no exception. But having said that, it's important that uh, when we talk about the fundamental justice affecting people, it's important that people take the initiative in terms of actually reading and understanding what's going on. And don't be afraid of being incorrect or being wrong, because the point is that you've got to have these kind of discussions in terms of bringing our clarity, because this situation is very, very critical. And without that kind of clarity in terms of understanding what we're up against, then we fundamentally make the same errors over and over again. I think also, I think one of the things is that, you know, uh, one of the things that the CIA has in its favor is that the ability of, of people who are unconscious, people who are not clear, people who are opportunistic, uh, people like that who exist in the community. In the African community, uh, clearly a struggle uh, is going to be against those individuals in the African community because of lack of clarity, uh, because of opportunism, who side not with the, with the African with the African masses or humanity, who side with those positions of power 
those who can give them uh, some money. Uh, so clearly we understand that dynamic, and we have to understand that forthrightly and not lose ourselves to believe that simply because someone occupies <laughs> the same space that they have the same consciousness. It doesn't work that way. And having said that, Brother Africa, as always, I encourage people to unravel the matrix. Uh, it is key in terms of our survival in society. There's also fundamental understanding in terms of the situation, then reasonably how can we formulate uh, policy or strategy in terms of moving forward. Having said that, Brother Africa, you have a good night. You do the same, Brother Haki, as well as to all of our participants, our listeners, and supporters. I'm going to make two quick announcements before we tune off for tonight, and that is, number one, we would not like to acknowledge our brother Bob Brown with all African people, represented by GC, uh, Pan-African Roots, and our brother Notes from the Barricade, a happy birthday, and just that's your birthday, which was yesterday, the 5th of June, and we would like to acknowledge his birthday and wish him many more. So if you get a chance, holler at your brother and let him know that um, we appreciate him, man. And we hope that you have many more fruitful birthdays. Also, we'd like to remind you, too, that at the end of this year, December 27th to January 3rd, Africa on the Move, along with African Awareness Associations and other groups, we are putting together a, a collage of groups who will be showing our appreciation to Cuba by taking a feeder ride to Cuba. If you have an interest in going and supporting our trip and supporting our brothers and sisters in Cuba, uh, please email us at AfricanOnTheMove2 at Gmail or the African Awareness Association 2 at gmail.com. And we will send you further information on sharing with you in terms of how you can get on board. So we're doing two announcements tonight. We would like to just remind you that this show is a community development project at the African Awareness Association. Um, we'd like to hear your feedback. We also are open for membership. If you're interested in having become a supporting member of Africa on the Moon, please do that. Do so by emailing us. Let us know what's your interest. And remind everyone that they can hear this program every Sunday evening, starting at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, U.S. So until next next time, let's all strive to go forward with Africa's novel. And remember, Africa is on the Moon. We'll see you next week. And we leave you with a message from Brother Kwame Chire as he talks about the importance of Pan Africanism and socialism. This is Africa on the Moon. Africanism must come from the bottom up, from the masses of the people up. It is here then that we've come to see the real aspect of Pan Africanism. We said that in the Fifth Pan African Congress, they called for mass organizations, and immediately mass organizations sprang up throughout the length and breadth of the African world. The Conventional People's Party, a mass party, sprang up in Ghana. The Democratic Party of Guinea, a mass party, sprang up in Guinea. Throughout the length and breadth of Africa, you had the TANU, the Tanzanian African National Union, which is now the CCM. My Swahili is uh, not as good as yours. Chimpa, Chimpuraza, Mazuri. That's very good. Oh, <laughs> my, my Swahili is bad. <laughs> Thank you. Exactly, exactly. And uh, that's their new party. But all over Africa, mass parties sprung up. If you look at the Caribbean, mass parties sprung up. And if you look at the United States, mass movements sprang up. So the call was heeded for mass confrontation. Of course, the Fifth Pan-African Congress made two definite and precise 
resolutions which I want to uh, highlight. Of course, Pan-Africanism from the very beginning was anti-colonial. From the very beginning it was anti-colonial. It was weak. So when they came, they didn't say to the queen, we're going to put you out of the country. They said, you must treat the natives right. You must educate them. You must prepare them for self-government. These are things that are weak, but they were anti-colonial in essence. We must not look at the form. And we got stronger, the more this anti-colonialism will express itself. Now, anti-colonialism is nothing but anti-capitalism. Because colonialism is nothing but an offshoot, an aspect of capitalism. Therefore, if you're anti-colonial, you must be anti-capitalist, if you're logical in your thinking, of course, and your actions. Some people are not, but we are speaking of logical people here. <laughs> if you're anti-capitalist, then you must be socialist. Capitalism cannot unite Africa. Africa has to be united by socialism. Now, there's a lot of confusion here on this question of capitalism and socialism. Just recently, a young man said to me, but socialism died. I said, it did. He said, you didn't hear about it. I said, I missed the funeral. <laughs> of course, he spoke about the betrayals that occurred in the East. You must not let capitalism confuse your thinking. This is a struggle which Pan-Africanism takes on. We struggle against imperialism in the illogical arena because many people think that capitalism just wants to exploit your labor. It wants to confuse your thinking and make you think just like them. And this is where the real fight occurs. So therefore, this struggle of confusing the thinking, I told the man, I said, you're talking nonsense. Socialism cannot uh, uh, disappear. It cannot die. He said, yes, it can. I said, no. He said, how do you say that? I said, well, you are judging uh, socialism by socialists. You don't do that. He said, I've never heard such nonsense. If you don't judge socialism by socialists, what do you judge it by? I say, you judge it by its principles. Every system is judged by its principles, never its adherence. So he still saw confusion. He said, you're just talking double talk. I said, okay, do you judge Christianity by Christians? <laughs> So we must not be confused here. Socialism doesn't fall because of betrayal. No system does. The person who betrays themselves goes to the mud, but the system with its eternal principles keep marching on. If a system fell because of betrayal, Christianity would have been finished with Judas. At least Judas had the dignity to hang himself. Ah. <laughs> Some of these who betray socialism don't have that dignity. Gorbachev still runs around speaking and picking up 30 pieces of silver everywhere. Yeah. So uh, socialism is an economic system. And there can only be two in the world, capitalism or socialism, because every economic system must answer one fundamental question. Who will own and control the wealth of the country? Who will own and control the means of production? The question can only be answered two ways. Either a few will own or everyone will own. It's as simple as that. And under capitalism, we say, please summarize that we might have. No, I'm going. I thought I had 20 minutes. It's my I thought I had 20 minutes. I was going by the clock. How much time do I have left? I'm sorry, maybe I'm off. That's what I thought I did. I was watching. Now I'm watching my clock. I'm a responsible. I'm rev revolutionary. I go by time. I got my clock. Thank you. Matter of fact, I can say it in two words: black power. <laughs> and today we've gone to one: Pan-Africanism. <laughs> yeah. So there are only two economic systems, and it's going to be capitalism or socialism. Capitalism is a backward system. There's no need to discuss it. Certainly anyone who's been made a slave by capitalism ought to be hesitant in trying to support the system. But as a conscious African, I must be against capitalism and I must, of course, seek to destroy it. So in, when you speak of Pan-Africanism, you must understand you speak of socialism. And we want to underline there's only one socialism out here, and that's scientific socialism, whose principles are abiding and universal. There's no such thing as African socialism, Chinese socialism, Russian socialism, Arab socialism. There's only one socialism. The confusion arises over ideology. That is that which guides you towards your objective. 
So we're saying clearly here, Pan-Africanism is not an ideology. It is an objective. It is an achievable. Pan-Africanism is the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. All we want is a unified continent with a socialist system. That's all. But you know Africa is the richest continent in the world. When she's properly organized, she'll be the most powerful. Yeah, of course. Of course. And me, all I want is power. <laughs> I'm not like others. I don't want money. I don't want popularity. I just want the power I'm supposed to get. That's all. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> Thank you. 